I'm Dan O'Donnell. Welcome to The Difference, the podcast that sits right at the intersection of politics and economics. I'm joined this week by Brian Jacobson, who's the chief economist at Annex Wealth Management, sitting in for the president and CEO, Dave Spano. Brian, welcome to The Difference. It's an honor to be spending the next 15 minutes with you. Yeah, this is fantastic. It's such a Dave's got to take more time off so I can do this. This is a really an honor. So you have got a whole ton of letters behind your name. Let me make sure I've got this correct. You are a PhD, a JD, a CFA, and a CFP. Yep, you got it. All of that, 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 all of that. You are, in other words, you are a BFG, right? <laughs> <laughs> Big to, to paraphrase our former vice president, current president. Big bleeping deal. So you got a Juris Doctor and a PhD, and a CFA, and a CFP. That's uh, that's amazing to me. Did you just get out of school last week? <laughs> no, believe it or not, I did that when I was uh, much younger and had a lot more energy. And I really focused on staying in this area, uh, not just as far as with finance and economics. You know, I love politics, economics, and investing. That intersection is really what I'm passionate about. But even geographically, as far as just staying hmm. in the Milwaukee area. So I went to Madison for undergraduate, UW Milwaukee for the PhD and then Marquette for the law degree, uh, so it was a uh, you know really the trifecta. Wow, that's that's really incredible, man. I am I am truly impressed. So uh, I I can see why Dave made you chief economist. <laughs> so I I'm going to actually tell I'm like, can you get people who are more qualified for these positions, Dave? You're just picking people off the street. <laughs> To be your chief economist. So clearly, Brian, you know, you know what you're talking about. Um, does the chairman of the Fed, I guess, is the big does question. Does he know what he's talking about? Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. that's kind of an open question right it, it, now because yeah. we were told, I mean, how many months were we signaling uh, going to be rate cuts, going to be rate cuts, going to be rate cuts. And then he goes on 60 Minutes and says... Yeah, forget about that, at least for March. Yeah, he was a little bit like uh, Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown, right, as far as... Uh, yeah, the, absolutely. The, the, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great analogy. I mean, that's like one of the most overused analogies that exists. No offense, Brian. Oh, no, no, uh, I, I, I get it. I know with your yeah. PhD, you could... But that, that, <laughs> that is actually by far the most apt. I mean, it, it really... It's, it's sitting there, okay, rate cuts, rate cuts... Plan on rate cuts, plan on rate cuts. Oh, no, 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 no rate cuts. Yep. I mean, that 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 is Lucy with the football. It really is. And maybe another analogy, and you'd appreciate this because you did uh, law school, is uh, do you yeah. remember uh, 1964 that uh, Justice Potter Stewart, when he was asked about pornography, about yeah, uh, I'll know it when I see it. it? Yeah, Right, but he, he'll know it when he yeah. sees so it. So yeah. it's, it's almost like, you know, what do uh, what does the time to cut rates and pornography have in common? It's I'll know it when I see it. And that's kind of the messaging <laughs> yeah. that Chair Powell came out with is, you know, they've already had six months in a row of better inflation numbers. And according to most economists, it's looking pretty sustainable to get towards that 2% rate. So how much more evidence do they need? And in the Fed's press conference, he was asked about that. He's like, well, you know, we've had six months of information, so we're confident. It's just we need greater confidence. And it's one of the problems. I mean, Chair Powell, remember, he's not an economist. He's a lawyer. right? And, yeah. and so instead of being straight to the point 
his job is more to use as many words as possible to convey as little as possible. And I think that's kind of what he's been doing, and the market isn't necessarily liking that too much. No, because, well, again, the market was waiting for that football. And we were going to, we were expected, especially in the real estate market, Mm -hmm. to kick off just in time for the home buying season, just in time for people to put their homes on the market and, and to get something even in the same stadium, to continue with the football analogy, something in the same stadium as the 3.54% interest rates that, that people have gotten in. So think about it like this. You're at 3.5% in a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Maybe you refinance down to get to 3.5%. What incentive do you have to go out and buy a house? Probably most people, when they buy another house, they're looking for a bigger house. Maybe they've had a couple of kids since then. To finance that house costs a whole lot more with a 7.2% mortgage rate. And if you're buying a bigger house, let's say you're going for one that's valued and, you know, home prices have gone up. So your house is valued at $300,000. Let's say you've got 60% equity in it, but you're looking at something with maybe an extra bedroom or two, and you're looking at something maybe in the $500,000 range. That's costing you a whole lot more money when you add to that all of the extra income that's getting devoted to mm-hmm. daily expenses, such sure. as utility costs, food especially, we see massive inflation. It's just like this perfect storm. And then when you have the Fed setting the expectations for interest rate cuts in March and then saying, nope, 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 wait, is it really any surprise that people are sort of throwing up their hands and saying, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, and do they even know what they're doing? I think that's the biggest question. You know, they say that they are data dependent, and that's great. You, I mean, what else would they be, you know, as far as just lick yeah. their finger, put it in the air, see which direction the wind is blowing? But when they claim to be data dependent, keep in mind, the data isn't necessarily the greatest in terms of the quality and the timeliness of it. A lot of How the, so? Well, as far as if you think about let's say the consumer price index okay that comes out fairly early in the month but it's for the previous month and now they are worried about what are the back year revisions going to look like so on this upcoming friday they are going to be releasing this annual adjustment to the seasonal factors and that's going to restate the inflation numbers for all of last year So for all we know, what we know now is not necessarily what we are going to know in a couple of weeks. So there's all these revisions. Um, The employment situation report, that number, those come from surveys, right? They survey a bunch of households. So that's the one that gives us the unemployment rate. But then they also survey a bunch of businesses. And that's the one that gives us the non-farm payrolls number. These are surveys. The non-response rate has gone through the roof, especially for the established survey one. And so what they did at the most recent employment situation report that came out, they actually did a, a re-benchmarking of it because, you know, the government, they do eventually collect all the data as far as with, you know, the W-2s, unemployment insurance and things like that. So they make wild and educated guesses in real time as to what the numbers are. But then they always go back and they sort of true it up. And the numbers from last year were off by about 250,000. So, you know, there's some good question as to the quality of the data. If they're data dependent, um, it's actually somewhat a little scary. So I've got to ask you about that uh, jobs report. We had a blowout 
335,000, 100,000 over expectations. This is incredible. Oh, my goodness. This is evidence that Bidenomics is working now. Of course, people don't see Bidenomics working for them. And I think the biggest reason for this is it is my very strong contention. And I can back this up with the data about the labor force participation rate and the like, that the jobs that are being quote unquote created, because it's never been easier, Brian, to take on a second job. The gig economy is a revolution in uh, second jobs, right? Mm -hmm. in, in your ability to have a side hustle, right? You, yep. you, this is the. I mean, we didn't we didn't hear this phrase until about 2017, 2018. Now it's ubiquitous in pop culture. Side hustle. You can drive Uber. You can do you know Uber Eats or Lyft or whatever it is. Whatever it is, very easy to do, especially with the rise of of telework in the wake of the 2020 lockdowns and stuff. So it's easy. It is my contention that the overwhelming majority of these jobs are not full-time family-supporting jobs that are being created because of the expansion of business, but rather these are people who are unable to afford the lifestyle that they grew accustomed to before hyperinflation in 21 and 22 took over and rose prices to the point where a family just isn't able to live like they were just three short years ago. So someone, the, the dad, the mom, they need to take a second job. And this is what's being reflected in the jobs numbers, even though our labor force participation rate, when adjusted for inflation, is flat or even below pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, there's some interesting nuances here to the data when we get them. As I said before about there's a survey of the households and then there's a survey of businesses. And within the survey of the households, they do ask, how many multiple job holders are there? And just for some perspective, back in January 2023, there were about 7.8, 7.9 million multiple job holders in the labor force. Now there's 8.1 million. So it has been increasing. There has been an increase in the number of multiple job holders. Now that's for an individual, right? One of the other things is to the extent that you have people entering the labor force or finding jobs. So you have, let's say, a household where you suddenly find somebody was a stay-at-home parent. They can no longer afford to do that. And so now they're coming back. So they're not a multiple job holder, but within the household, you need those multiple jobs in order to maintain your lifestyle. And when I take a look at even, let's say, the household survey, you know, the, the media really glommed on to that big headline number as far as the non-farm payrolls, more than 330,000. Yeah. When you look at the employed numbers from the household survey, it actually went down. Uh, you actually had 161.183 million people employed in December. January, it went down to 161,152,000. So they move in different directions. And that's some of the noisiness of this data is that, uh, you know, maybe things aren't quite as uh, pretty as what they might first appear to be, especially when you dig in. Another interesting thing that I found, a lot of people were focused on the big increase in wages in January, jumped yep. by 0.6%. However, if you actually look at the total number of hours that people worked, total payrolls yep. for the week, you had a decline in the hours worked by about 0.2% 
that's kind of inconsistent with more people working. And then the wages only rose by about 0.2. And some of that might be weather related. We know January was a horrible month in terms of weather. And as a result, people were on payrolls or maybe they didn't work the hours. So hours went down, but they still collected a paycheck. So the per hours, right, if you get the same pay, but you worked less hours, temporarily because you couldn't make it to work, all of a sudden that appears as though it's a huge pay bump. So you got to kind of look through some of those details here. You definitely do, because it does not seem like the jobs picture is nearly as rosy, because what have we heard for the past, what, six, eight months, massive layoffs? Every major company, it seems, has had big layoffs, and yet we still see, oh, the jobs number is improving, the jobs number is improving, wages are improving. Uh, I still wonder, when adjusted for inflation, are we really better off than we were four years ago? It's, of course, my very strong contention that we are not. Uh, but that's just me. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that compared to four years ago, it really depends on who you are, you know, and that's one of the problems with some of these macroeconomic statistics is that it is for the economy as a whole. It's averaged across every possible way that you can slice and dice the population in terms of, uh, you know, men versus women, geography, uh, if it, whichever income cohort you're in. And so as a whole, when we look at it, okay, we really went through a COVID freeze, and then we have unthawed for the most part, but not everybody has unthawed at the same pace. It's not a rising tide that's necessarily lifting all boats. We right. had a, re- a rolling recession, manufacturing and housing looks like it's going to continue for a little bit here. Service sector spending was great, but that was mainly leisure, hospitality, travel, things like that. Uh, so other service areas not necessarily participating. Uh, and so the macro data is really, uh, I think, a, a real blunt way to unfortunately look at the economy. There's a lot of nuance that's really important. And I think this is why so many people, despite what could be interpreted, and I think a lot of people in the media are interpreting this as just incredible data, just aren't feeling its effects. You know, obviously for the investor class, yeah, sure. If the stock market is just really raising your 401k and if you're doing individual investments as well, if you've got property, that value has exploded. But people who are, and this is the majority of people in this country, who are living paycheck to paycheck, who aren't in the investor class, they're just not feeling it. They're just not, you know, they don't have the assets. They're, in fact, paying so much more and I think taking on second jobs in order to pay for it all. They're, of course, feeling, hey, you know what? Bidenomics isn't really working for me. Thank you, Brian, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I hope the next time Dave is off, you're going to be filling in Brian Jacobson. He is the chief economist for Annex Wealth Management. Reminder, head to AnnexWealth.com for a review of your portfolio from someone just like Brian, a CFA, CFP, a JD, a PhD. Uh, Really do appreciate talking with you Brian, AnnexWealth.com, the website. I'm Dan O'Donnell. Thanks so much for listening to this week's edition of The Difference. 
Annex Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect those of Annex Wealth Management, its producers, hosts, or guests. The host of this podcast is compensated for his endorsement of Annex Wealth Management. Information presented should not be considered as tax, legal, or investment advice or recommendation or solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risks. Neither Annex Wealth Management nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.